This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting on AFN. I'm Armin Brott. Sleep. Very few of us get enough of it. In fact, most of us crave a lot more. According to sleep researcher and expert Kat Duff, sleep is an occurrence that is so common, so habitual, so ubiquitous, we barely notice. Like the air we breathe, it is something we become aware of only when its quality is deteriorating. But almost nobody knows that sleep has a secret life. In this part of today's show, we're going to be exploring what happens between the time we close our eyes in bed at night and the moment we wake up in the morning. We'll talk about the fact that about 60% of Americans experience habitual sleep problems and that sleep deprivation makes us act like two-year-olds and drive like drunks. We'll learn about how sleep has become commercialized by selling so many sleep aids. But here's the bottom line. Like clean water, fresh air, and other endangered resources, we are just now beginning to appreciate that sleep is vanishing right before our eyes. The Secret Life of Sleep, coming up when Positive Parenting continues right after this. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. I'm the only one in school that can tie his own shoes. Most kids make fun of me because I still believe in the tooth fairy. A third of the kids in my 8th grade class drink alcohol regularly. Over 99% of my class has been offered illegal drugs. Half of my college classmates binge drink, abuse drugs, or do both. But the frequent dinners I had with my family have helped make sure I'm not one of them. Learn more about the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse at Columbia University's Family Day at casafamilyday.org. Dinner makes a difference. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Kat Duff, who is the author of The Secret Life of Sleep. Kat, thanks very much for joining us today. Great to have you. I'm really happy to be here. Well, let's talk about something I think that I'm curious about, and sleep is one of these things you you think you know what it means, and then if you start thinking about it, it becomes less and less clear. How would you define sleep? Well, sleep is what happens when we, uh, basically amongst all creatures, uh, when you uh, quiet down, close your eyes, reduce stimulation from the outside world, and wake up later on. Um, it's hard to define as well, for, uh, but you just have to differentiate it from uh, being in a coma or being put out for surgery or something like that. So you're still having some connection with the outside world you can still react as if you're under some sort of sedation you're not gonna have that i mean is, there, is that a way of of kind of well that's one way um of course if you're in a lighter sleep you're going to be more aware of you know sounds and smells and things going on around you if you're in a deeper sleep you may not be aware uh but it's also that it's a regular pattern a daily pattern or twice a day pattern uh that it's very clued into or cued into 
uh, our biological connection to the Earth and the fact that it rotates on its axis and we have these alternating light and dark phases of our days. So what's going on during sleep? I know for, for babies it's quite a bit different than for adults or for even y- younger kids, but generally speaking, what's happening there? I was surprised in my research to find out how much goes on when we sleep. Uh, we are regenerating tissues. We're building bones and muscles. You know how uh, parents will say, I swear my child grew overnight. It's actually true. Um, it strengthens our immunity. It removes toxic byproducts. We also make our memories when we sleep. Uh, we derive meaning from our experiences. Sleep improves our mood, our judgment, our capacity to solve problems. Um, our physical, mental, emotional health depends on our sleep. Now, is it because we're getting a break from the kinds of stuff that we're doing consciously during the day, or is there actually something physiological that's going on that happens when you're asleep that doesn't happen when you're awake? There's actually things going on. Uh, it's not just because we're having a break from being busy in the world, although certainly that is part of it. But in fact, when they look at what's going on in the brain, sometimes our brains and bodies are busier when we're asleep than when we're awake. We just aren't aware of it. Uh, a lot is actively going on uh, uh, while we don't have to be responding to the outside world. Why is it so misunderstood? Well, I think there's various reasons for that. One is that uh, uh, the way one of the ways we learn about things is through the scientific method that wants to, you know, observe and measure and quantify things, and that's very hard to do uh, with sleep. Uh, in fact, it wasn't until recent decades when we developed the electroencephalogram, the EEG and more recently the brain imaging techniques that we've actually been able to find out scientifically uh, how much was going on. Uh, But also we live in a culture and and part of a cultural tradition that tends to um, devalue sleep because it's so focused on productivity. Uh, In fact, and for so long we didn't realize that our productivity depended on our sleep. Um, and so we kind of saw it as a waste of time. Uh, you know, Ben Franklin was famous for saying, you know, that you can get plenty of sleep, you know, in the grave. Right now you've got to work, you know. Um, and so I think it's a mix of just ignorance because we didn't have a way to understand sleep as well as some cultural attitudes that were dismissive of it. Are there some cultural differences between the way that we in, in Western society look at sleep and some less Western cultures? That was another thing that surprised me in my research because one of the things I found out is that um, if you step outside the Western tradition and especially go to Asian uh, traditions, uh, they've been observing and uh, considering sleep to be important and observing its phases for centuries, for millennia. You can find ancient Hindu and Buddhist texts from you know, long into the B.C. era era that very accurately describe different phases of sleep that scientists have more recently in the West uh, determined is actually true, (laughs) that we do have those phases of sleep. So uh, there are traditions that have uh, observed sleep more carefully, have made use of sleep more, um, have recognized its importance. 
Well, it seems like with a, a lot of the Asian cultures, whether it's uh, East Asian like Pakistani Indian or the Japanese Chinese, that there's meditation is part of things, which seems – how does that fit in there? Because it's not sleep, but it's not completely awake either. Well, that's a good question, and, and sometimes uh, people who meditate a lot say that they don't need to sleep uh, as much, um, and uh, I have no way of assessing um, whether that's true or not, but it is often said, and I think that in some kinds of meditative practice, we do allow some of that background processing uh, to go on that happens when we're asleep, and because when we're meditating, we aren't busy interacting with the world, so our brains can kind of go into default mode and start doing some of that processing. You know, there's a lot of um, important emotional processing that goes on when we sleep. Uh, you know how you can be upset about something before bed, and you wake up the next morning and you go, oh, it's not that big a deal. You know, um, There's a lot of that that goes on in our sleep, and I think to some extent some of that can happen uh, in meditation, too. Now, why do you think that, especially among kids, there's this fear of sleep? I mean, I, I can see that it's something that you don't understand. I mean, if plenty of adults don't understand it, you just you don't know that you're ever going to come back again. But what? Why? Why the fear? Yeah, uh, it's a you know it's a big question, and uh, I think not only do we not know if we're going to come back, uh, we're going into darkness where our senses aren't able to give us as much information, we're having to let go of the things that we count on. Uh, we're having, to, you know, we take off our clothes, we uh, say goodbye to our parents and siblings. Uh, I think to some extent, uh, our cultural tradition of solitary sleep, especially uh, for children, uh, it's very unusual in terms of looking at practices around the world and also historically. And uh, my sense is that that does contribute to the fear of sleep because you are away from the people who, who you count on to take care of you. And, of course, you've got to start figuring in nightmares and stuff like that, right? Yeah. You know, some children, one of the points I like to make when I talk with parents is that um, the kind of sleep we get, what we need from sleep, how much we sleep, when we sleep. It varies a great deal by age, how old we are. It also varies from one individual to another. And um, some children, you know, happily sail off to their bedrooms and uh, fall asleep, and it's no big deal. And then you can have another child in the same family, same situation, uh, for whom there are, you know, nightmares and fears. And, and uh, some of us are just constitutionally a little more sensitive in our nervous systems. Uh, one of the thing that I, things that I encourage both adults and children and, and adults with their children to do is to experiment in kind of varying the conditions around sleep to see what works best. Uh, some of us are your classic morning people, uh, and some of us are more night owls, and, and they even find those patterns well-established in toddlers. So if you're trying, if you have a toddler who's going to grow up to be a night owl, and you're trying to put him or her to bed at, you know, seven or eight o'clock, like all the other kids you've always put to bed when they were that age, and uh, he just fusses and complains and cries and just can't get to sleep, it may be that it's just not time for that child to go to sleep yet. 
and so there and and I think some children sleep fine alone and others really need to hear the breathing of a sibling nearby or uh, you know just and need a little more of a sense of companionship or the family dog at the end of their bed or something like that some uh, children as well as adults sleep better when there's a little background noise or a little nightlight. Others need it dark. Uh, and uh, it's really worth the trouble to kind of try to figure out what works best for yourself as well as for your children. One of the things that I was wait, really surprised wait, hang, about... Cat, hang on just a second. Yeah. Let me... Cat Duff is the author of The Secret Life of Sleep. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking with Cat about sleep, what it is, and how to get more of it, and how to understand it a little bit better. I'm Armin Brant. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with Kat Duff, who's the author of The Secret Life of Sleep. And Kat, you were just about to say something. One of the things I was surprised about in my research is um, the extent of uh, sleep loss amongst children in our society. Uh, I'm used to it amongst teenagers because they naturally tend to, you know, biologically they're geared to, to uh, stay up later and sleep later, but our schools make them get up earlier, and so they tend to be pretty sleep-deprived by the end of the school week. But um, nine- and ten-year-olds are not getting enough sleep. There was an international study, uh, a test that was given to nine- and ten-year-olds all around the world uh, that was compiled over at Boston College, and it found that uh, 73% of the American 9- and 10-year-olds were sleep-deprived in taking that test. Uh, that was more than, a higher percentage than in any other country in the world. Wow. That's kind of concerning, especially when you go back to what you were saying before about the, the effect on cognitive issues. And certainly the, there's, I know I've seen some of the studies as well, about the effects on grades, effects on, on not only intellectual stuff, but your physiological stuff, it increases your risk of of heart problems and... Oh, obesity. Uh, you know, when you aren't getting enough sleep, physiologically we crave fatty foods. Uh, and so um, there's a direct correlation between how much sleep you're getting and your uh, weight. Uh, but for uh, with 9- and 10-year-olds, one of the tricky things is that you know, if you or I don't get enough sleep, we kind of stumble around the next day and look kind of groggy. Uh, a 9- and 10-year-old, though, or those school-age kids, they act like hyperactive kids. They hmm. bounce off the walls. They're wild. They can't focus on anything. And clinicians in the medical field as well as the psychological field are, are now beginning to say that a, a lot of our ADHD diagnoses are actually uh, sleep de- deprivation. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. You know, there, there's the American Academy of Pediatrics, which comes out every once in a while with sleep guidelines, and there are various institutes that come up with how much, roughly, kids need at, at any particular age. But how can you really tell how much a kid needs to sleep, or an adult for that matter? Because it seems like there's gonna be, it's going to be completely random in a way, that you have to take into consideration each individual person's needs and temperament, and you can't just say... Every 10-year-old needs 10 hours of sleep. 
Absolutely, I agree, and that's why they try to give an average. You know, these are norms that they come out with, you know. Uh, but the best way to tell whether, uh, especially for us as adults, whether we're getting enough sleep is whether we feel awake all day or whether we struggle with sleepiness. We have to grab for another cup of coffee or a Red Bull uh, with children because they, you know, be, their behavioral response to uh, not getting enough sleep is different. If you have a child who can't focus, who's really distractible, irritable, uh, explosive, uh, those are all typical signs of sleeplessness. Now, they can also be signs of other things, uh, but one thing that clinicians always need to do is, uh, first, of all, first of all, find out if that child, uh, the quality of their sleep and the quantity of their sleep. Is there any way to change the way that you sleep? You know, that's an interesting uh, question because it is, to some extent, very biologically driven. I have a, a friend who uh, recently retired from a, a long career as a school teacher, and uh, before she started teaching, she was a night owl, and then she started teaching, and she turned into a morning person, and within a month after retiring, she was back to being a night owl. To, to some extent, it's just our natures, um, but we can certainly focus on um, creating the kind of atmosphere that supports sleep. For example, one of the most important things, and, and I think of issue for uh, kids and adults now, is our exposure to nighttime light, especially the blue frequencies that our LED screens put out a lot of. So our computers, our phones, our TVs, you know, any of those LED screens, that light will keep us awake. And uh, so uh, I recently talked with... Um, a mother who said, you know, we re realized that we were all having that problem of getting stuck on the phone or Facebook or, or solitaire or some video game on the computer. And so she said, we started a family practice where when each of us goes to bed, we put our cell phones in a basket in the kitchen. Huh. Uh, simple things like that can make a big difference. I guess that's only if you're having problems. I'm just sort of thinking that my my dad and I seem to share this particular thing. My mother, who has got insomnia and has had for, for years and years, is constantly complaining about my dad's ability to just fall asleep yeah. at the drop of a hat. I mean, yeah. and I, I have exactly the same thing. I've had various people I have been sleeping next to have said, you know, it's just it's terrible. I, you, know, you get in. <laughs> You're and, one of the lucky ones that we all want to complain about. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I feel, I feel like one of those dolls that, you know, you put your, the doll goes horizontal and the eyes close, and, yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm out of it. And noise, lights, makes no difference at all. Yeah, yeah, that's a gift. And, and some people are like that. Like, and, and some people, you know, I have friends who can only sleep with the TV on in the bedroom. I mean, you know, it does vary. Uh, but... Um, we are very individual. One of the neat things or one of the ways to really set that circadian cycle so that you're awake in the daytime and, a, and ready to sleep at night is to get good light exposure first thing in the morning. I try to walk my dogs in the morning. Even if it's a cloudy day, uh, you're still getting that blue frequency light that wakes you up. One of the big challenges, particularly for, for brand-new parents, is getting them exactly to do what you just oh. kind of alluded to, getting from the pregnancy mode of being awake during awake at night when everything's quiet and asleep at day when everything's being rocked, babies are being rocked to sleep. Yeah. How do you switch? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, it, 
it, it seems like every parent has to reinvent the wheel a little bit. And there's, there's lots of advice and suggestions out there. And, of course, you always have to kind of try and compromise, uh, you know, between your needs for sleep and the child's needs for sleep. Um, but one of the things that uh, is becoming more and more clear is that just the uh, proximity of a caregiver uh, not necessarily do they have to be holding, they don't have to be in the same bed, they don't have to, you know, it's just nearby so that that infant can hear the breathing, the smells, all that is um, what's most important for supporting them in their own uh, sleeping. You know, I wanted to get back to something that you talked about, about kind of things being set. Do you think it's possible to actually enjoy sleep? I mean, I hear people who say, oh, I really love to sleep. Are you enjoying the sleep itself, or are you enjoying waking up rested? Or I don't know. It just seems like there's a, a often you know, sleeping late on the weekends. There's something yeah. enjoyable about that. But I'm trying to figure out now, since we've been talking about this, is it that's enjoyable waking up knowing you don't have to get out of bed right away, or what is it that makes it enjoyable? Well, that's a good question, and I'm sure there's many factors, and, and not having to deal with the world, I'm sure, is one of them. Um, I'm one of those people who's always loved to sleep, and part of it was because I got to, you know, close my books and let go of my responsibilities, even as a child. Uh, but also, um, even as a child, I noticed that sleep often made me better, that I woke up in a better mood, I remembered things better in the morning than when I was studying that night before for that test. Um, so, and sometimes around the edges of sleep, I would have experiences that were very meaningful in some way. Uh, and so I have also often had the sense that sleep gives to me. Uh, and it's uh, like kind of a secret friend, secret ally. Hmm. Interesting. Now, we only have just about a minute left, but I, I definitely want to touch on this because you talk about the commercialization of sleep through sleep aids, and you, everybody has seen the ads for little butterflies going out the window and various kinds mm -hmm. of sleep aids. I guess it's because we're so sleep-deprived as a culture, but th does that sleep help? Is it as restorative as natural sleep? Um, you know, some would, uh, people oftentimes who take sleep aids or sleep medications say it saved their lives, uh, you know, and it really makes a big difference, and I'm not going to discount that. Uh, the studies have indicated that on average they add uh, anywhere from 11 to 14 minutes of sleep, and you get less of the deep physically restorative sleep, less of the rapid eye movement, REM, mm -hmm. emotionally restorative sleep, so you don't get quite as much restoration, but the medications do lower anxiety, and that's very helpful. We aren't as worried about how much sleep we're getting. And they also uh, create a kind of amnesia for the night so we don't remember the tossing and turning. And mm. those two things all by themselves are helpful, but it's not that it makes a, a better sleep. Kat Duff is the author of The Secret Life of Sleep. Really interesting book and uh, about something we don't do enough of. Kat, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Armin.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott and wanted to talk to you in this particular Parents at Play segment about some politically incorrect stuff, and that would be things that shoot. And I know, Sam, you're, you're there and cringing right now because <laughs> you know how I love this stuff. Probably some, some leftover thing from my days in the Marine Corps. I just like to shoot things. And, it's a man you know, thing, maybe. Yeah. You know, but it's all I have to have to say. I mean, it's not just random shooting. It is really, I think, safety is a, is a super important thing. And that, you that's, lie. You'll shoot things no, randomly. Oh, no, 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 no. Nobody's ever been injured in my house. And not that it, not that they'll admit to anyway. Right, nothing, nothing we can prove. Yeah. So there was a company <laughs> called Juby. At least I think that's what it's pronounced. It's, it's a D J U B I, and they had a couple of really interesting things. They're not like gun guns. They're they're sort of a an odd combination of like a racquetball racket, a catcher's glove, a slingshot. So you have to imagine a a racket that's. Well, it's sort of like a, a racquetball racket, but it's kind of like a butterfly net also that the, the netting is big. And then they have these balls that have a, a tether on it. So you pull it back, and then you play catch with this thing. And it, it was really a tremendous amount of fun to be out there playing with my daughter. We were standing way far apart. And, <laughs> I mean, it's, it, which is a really – it's a great thing. I mean, it's, it's nice because you can play with somebody. You can also kind of compete. You can send people running around all over the place. And it was just a, a very nice, pleasant way to do things, and sort of. So it's kind of like playing catch, but you're shooting something. It's 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 not really kind of in the same genre as an actual weapon. Uh, so I I like that. I think it was great. And that's the, the uh, Juby Classic, and it costs about somewhere around fifteen dollars, roughly. And and depending on where you get it, you can get it from their website, you can get it from Amazon, or all sorts of different places. But something I think is a is a great great thing to do with your kids, as opposed to necessarily competing against them. Well, you know, I'm I'm in the I'm in the Northeast, so we've been having a brutal winter over here. We have had nothing but snow; it's only melting now. Haven't had much time to get outside uh, and play these kinds of toys, but we're headed down uh, south for for the week in in just two days. So I'm looking. I'm, I, these are in the bags; they're packed. I'm looking forward to uh, trying these out with my son. So. They're waterproof, so I'm excited to bring them in the pool and yes. to set them loose on the beach. Exactly, yeah. Now, there's another one called the, the Juby Dart Bowl, and it's a similar kind of a thing, smaller racket, smaller little balls, and then there's also a target, which is a, a net kind of a target, so you shoot it and the, the, the balls go into the net. And I have to say, your son is familiar with this one because I had it in my house when I was watching your son a couple weeks he ago. He was telling me about it. Yeah, and he's good. He's a nice. He's got a nice movement there, and and it's each of the. He's amazing. What can I tell you? Yeah, he's, a, he's a great kid. So there, there are five sections. There's four around the outside, and then one kind of the bullseye in the middle. And you basically just you shoot. You can sh- you can have competitions. You can shoot. One person shoots them all. The other person shoots them all. And just add up the scores. Each one of the the sections is labeled, and it's an, again it's a, a pretty non-shooting kind of a thing. It's really it's it can be competitive. It can be teamwork. Uh, I, I I enjoyed it. And it was uh, and and I got the the perspective of a six, six year old boy this time instead of my ten year old girl, and uh, he seemed to love it. And I know my daughter does as well. So but, uh, he definitely loved it. He was talking about it when he got that that and the Red Ranger. Those were his two big uh, his two big discussion points. And your dog. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he had a chance to take the dog out for lunch too. He was super excited about that. So then next up we had the VMD Cannon Commando, 
And VMD stands for Vehicles of Mass Destruction. So you can tell we're already in a whole different mode than the nice play on the beach juby thing. So I have to tell you, when I, I read this one before, and it actually looks like something I would I would be interested in, in trying in the backyard, even though it shoots, I know, but this this looks like fun, and as long as you aim it like at the fence and not at like the neighbor. Yes, that that's one of the most important things. In most remote control kinds of shooters, you can adjust the height, so the trajectory, so you could shoot high or you could shoot low, and you can do that with the remote controller. This one, you actually have to move the physically move the the trajectory any way that you want, and it stays that way. So as a parent, you can say nothing gets shot around here higher than knee level. And mm. that, and so there's no, there'll be no shooting the Ming vases off of the fireplace mantle. Right. Uh, you know, and there'll, <laughs> there'll be, be no, no going over the neighbor's fence and, ooh, who's going to get it? <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that can be a very tempting thing because this shoots harder than any other kind of remote control thing that I've, I've had a chance to test. And I remember we, we saw them at a toy fair and they wanted, they wanted me to do a blurb and my, my, for the package. And my initial reaction was, I remember, was, you're so cool. Yeah, it was just going to be, ouch. <laughs> that was all I was going to say. Trust <laughs> me, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So, but it, it's it's a great thing. I mean, it shoots. I I can't remember now. I think it shoots about sixteen rounds. And you can move it, maneuver it three sixty. It's it's lots of fun. And again, it's it's a great opportunity to talk about safety, which I always try to mix into any sort of shooting anything at all, whether you believe it or you not. Because you try to make shooting PC. I do. I live in Oakland. It's close to Berkeley. You know how it goes <laughs> with these things. So. <laughs> All right, so the last one I had a chance to take a look at was the Tech Recon 5545, what's it, Hammerhead, I, I, I 55 just... 55450 Hammerhead Battle Pack. Yeah, and you know, I wish that people would come up with much Not shorter names. It's just it's just cumbersome to deal with this yep. stuff. But Now, what was interesting about these things was that <laughs> the, the way that they shoot, they don't shoot foam darts, and they don't shoot pellets or paintballs. What they shoot is kind of like a, a small, thick rubber band. And you put these into a magazine, kind of a clip that goes into the bottom of it. And it's it was a really interesting thing. It doesn't hurt when you get hit with them. It comes with a couple of targets, so you can be shooting at the targets. But it also comes with an app, as pretty much everything else everything does these has days. An app. Yeah. There's an app for that. But there's kind of a, a virtual reality, augmented reality element to it so that you can communicate through, if you have two smartphones, one on each, attached to each one of these things. You can compete with somebody. You can play as a team. You can talk about what you're going to do, how, how you're going to go, how you're going to approach a target, things like that. It's really a very cool thing and adds a, a, an element of cooperation that usually isn't there for, for most shooting kinds of things. So I, I was really, really enjoying this, too. Did you have a chance to try it out? I, I, I haven't. They didn't send that to me. They only liked you best. They, they, didn't, they didn't like me for this one. They must have heard about my anti-shooting campaign. No, oh, well, I, I won't. Oh, I'm not going to break You've been their telling heart. lies about me, haven't you? <laughs> I'm trying to get you some sort of a stuff to have some fun with, Sam. Come on. So we've got reviews of a lot of other shooting toys and a lot of other much, much more peaceful toys on parentsatplay.com. And, of course, at parentsatplay.com, you can check that out. I'm Armand Brott, and this is Samantha Fuse. walk and you drive. So let's make a deal. I'll watch for you and cross the street safely. You watch for me and stop. Think of the impact we can make. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. 
Welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I am Armin Brott. One in seven women is affected by postpartum depression. But as common as that is, it really continues to be a very misunderstood and uncomfortable topic of discussion. Women who experience postpartum depression and anxiety still bear their experiences in silence. They're just completely afraid of the shame and the stigma that accompanies this easily dismissed and often misdiagnosed illness. Now, public awareness has improved quite a bit in recent years, and that's maybe in large part due to the celebrity moms who are getting on TV and discussing their own trials with postpartum depression. And there are more treatments available these days. But it's still largely seen as a personal weakness, something that a mom needs to oh, just snap out of it, as opposed to being an actual disease that needs time to overcome and needs treatment. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about the physiological, the psychological, and the environmental factors that contribute to postpartum depression. We're going to talk about how to recognize and accept the illness. And most important, we're going to talk about the healing process and how to combat the negative thoughts and how to learn how to take care of yourself and also how to recognize when you just can't do it on your own and you need to get some professional help. We'll start talking about facing and overcoming postpartum depression, including some really interesting stuff on how dads can participate and support their partners when positive parenting continues right after this. My son Casey was a bright, fearless 20-year-old with a boundless future ahead of him. But in the blink of an eye, he was gone. While out riding a skateboard, Casey fell. He was not wearing a helmet. Our whole family wishes he was. It could have saved his life. I'm Captain Kevin Raffelli of the San Mateo Police Department. Parents, encourage your kids to strap on a helmet every time they jump on a bike, scooter, or skateboard. Think of my son Casey and use your head. Put a helmet on. It could save your life. A message from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Valerie Davis-Raskin, who's the co-author of This Isn't What I Expected, Overcoming Postpartum Depression. Valerie, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Let's talk about postpartum depression. I think it's it's really one of the most misunderstood kinds of things out there. I, I teach classes for expectant dads, and, and quite often I, I ask them at the very beginning of the class, you know, what, what is it you guys want to talk about? What are your pressing concerns? And a, a lot of them mention postpartum depression, and I think they have in mind something that's very different, because uh, uh-huh. the, partly because of, uh, along the lines of postpartum psychosis, for those who remember Andrea Yates and that kind of thing. Um, talk a little bit about the, the prevalence of postpartum depression, and just give us a really big overview and and how it differs from things that it's often confused with. Sure. You know, people tend to confuse postpartum depression with either either they over uh, worry about these terrible things like postpartum psychosis, or they minimize it. They're like on either end, which is, oh, it's just baby blues. And baby blues is a kind of minor, self-limited, couple of days, maybe even a couple hours of weepiness, um, but it doesn't really impair functioning. It doesn't impact the family. The mother may feel pretty pretty 
defeated for a few hours or a few days, but that's quite common. And as many as 80% of new moms have baby blues. Now, that only it you're saying that only goes on for a couple of days at the most? I mean, you yep. hear... Yeah, it can last two weeks, but it, that's very rare. Usually okay. it's a, simply a day or two, and it usually occurs around the time that a woman is, is aware, like, her milk comes in, the letdown um, experience is highly hormonal, so you kind of can almost clock it, like, okay, my hormones just shifted, wow, I'm miserable. And, um, again, you know, 50%, 80% of women have it. It's weepiness, um, so, and in between you feel what some people call postpartum pinks. You're happy, the baby's gorgeous and healthy and wonderful, all that, you know, it all kind of goes together. But it's a period of great emotional, um, we would call it lability, kind of mood swings. But again, self-limited, don't need treatment, a nap is good, dad's role is to, to try to make sure mom gets some sleep. And that's kind of the one end. And it's really important that someone who has clinical postpartum depression not just say, oh, this is baby blues, everybody gets it. So let me just address the other end of the spectrum, which yeah. is postpartum psychosis. And there, you know, that is the terror that I think comes to mind when people think about postpartum depression. Uh, a woman who loses touch with reality. So her, her brain is not functioning. She no longer can distinguish truth from fact. So she may feel that she's getting hidden messages or, or have... Uh, things have a special meaning. She may be hallucinating, delusional, paranoid. That's extremely rare. One in 2,000. Uh, and most of the time, those women will turn out to have a predisposition perhaps to bipolar disorder. But again, okay. very rare. It is an emergency. And if anyone has, a, has that and has, um, you know, witnesses it because the person is experiencing it, the Andrea Yates or whoever, doesn't realize their brain is right. functioning. It's you know, it's, it, it's interesting. I've seen it. I've seen interviews with the the husbands of women who do who have had postpartum psychosis and and other people who have been around, and it's interesting that they almost all say, "Well, you know, I didn't, I don't know, I didn't think she was really serious about drowning the kids or you know, the, or being so miserable that she wanted to kill herself or the kinds of things that that somebody with postpartum psychosis would say." How do you explain to people that, that, you know, this is not something that you just sort of laugh off? Please this is serious business. Oh, good heavens. It is, a, it is as serious, as critical a psychiatric emergency as there is because the sleep deprivation that goes along with it and the hormonal changes really fuels it. So I describe it as being a house on fire. If you, if your wife is making um, any kind of unusual statements or bizarre statements or seems really confused, not herself, and is making any hints about harming the baby or harming herself, because really an even bigger risk is that she'll hurt herself. I mean, the babies, unfortunately, um, can be part of that, and, and, but the, the statistically the greater risk is suicide, not killing the baby. Mm. Either one is an uh, tragedy for a family. And again, this is something that people need to recognize because the mom herself is incapable of understanding mm -hmm. what's going on. Right. Okay. For her, these beliefs that she's getting uh, are real. Yeah. Her brain doesn't distinguish that. That's, you know, that's the definition of psychosis is you can't tell reality from what's going on in your head. Sure. So the voices sound real, the delusions sound real. But the good news is that's pretty darn rare. And so now that kind of brings us back to what is the more serious, more common, or what we sometimes call garden variety. 
um, postpartum depression. And that's something that, you know, 15 to 25% of women, depending on what studies you look at or how you define it, have a clinical syndrome in which they, day after day, for a minimum of two weeks, and often it can go on for months, um, feel a loss of pleasure, a loss of enjoyment, sad feelings, anxiety, perhaps irritability. These women say, I'm not myself. Now, they're not hallucinating. They may be taking perfectly good care of the baby, and often they are, but inside their experience is just one of suffering. And uh, it, it is, it's quite treatable. It's quite common. You know, when you think about that, one in four maybe, you know, women have this. It's really, um, it's out there. And we still haven't quite figured out what the role of hormones are, what the best treatments are. You know, there's some, there's some, this, you know, the, the book that um, I wrote with my co-author, Karen Kleiman and I, it's the second edition. So it's been close to 20 years since we wrote the first one. Things really haven't changed that much, unfortunately. It's still something that when you experience, you feel ashamed. You feel maybe it's my fault. I'm not a, a, a good mom. You may feel it's my husband's fault. He's not a good husband. He's not a good dad. Somehow there's a sense of kind of guilt and self-reproach that really is, is painful to, to witness. Well, and that probably has to make it kind of spiral out of or I guess deeper, because once you start with the I'm not a good mom thing, then you start looking for any anything that's going to support that particular point of view. And yes. so everything you do, so I'm not a good mom because I'm not I'm not feeling happy about having a baby. I'm not a good mom because I'm, I'm not you know, rushing out and talking to all my friends about it or, or playing with the baby as much as I, I could be, should be, whatever. That's That's got to be the, the hardest part. Yeah, and you know what happens is... <laughs> You have a new baby and everyone on the planet comes up to you. You know, it's the biggest people magnet there is. And they say, oh, it's fantastic. Isn't this the happiest time of your life? And you kind of force that smile. And that, that, but inside, you know, not at all. This is not a happy time. And I think that that discrepancy between the idealization of babies, we we don't really talk about, you know, some of the really dark and, an unhappy moments, you know, being fatigued, fighting with your spouse, very typical. I mean, that's much more, I would say, you know, close to 100% yeah. of, of couples are cranky with each other and feel <laughs> um, miserable. You know, people are tired and they're grouchy. You know, I've seen some studies on this, which I, I thought were just fascinating, about the, the percentage of people who actually fall in love with their baby immediately. And it's, mm-hmm. it's less than half. And I know mm-hmm. a, a lot of dads that, that I talk to, so, so much of my work is with fathers, they feel really guilty about that in a way because you, you, you have this media image or cultural image that says you have a baby, you're immediately in love. And a lot of people's first reaction is, hmm, okay, now what? You know, and it's, yeah. uh, I think that, that's well, got to contribute to the whole thing too. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is a, it's, it's a well-kept secret, and thank you for bringing that out. But in fact, they hand you this fragile, icky, you know, maybe kind of um, scary-looking thing with, you know, and say, okay, now you're 100% responsible, and don't you love this baby more than anything in the world? Um, And, you you know, you haven't necessarily been through the most joyful experience of your life, and I I do, it's, it's a, you know, I'm I'm now not yet a grandmother, but my kids are in their 20s, and it, it, it breaks my heart that we really haven't 
in 25 years started to really consistently tell the truth about new parenthood, how difficult it is, and how what we what media tells us is natural and universal isn't that way for everybody. And people need to know they are not the only one. They're not the only new dad who went, Absolutely. Ah, I don't yeah. get the excitement. Yeah. Valerie Davis Raskin is the co-author with Karen Kleiman of This Isn't What I Expected, Overcoming Postpartum Depression. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Valerie and want to get into some of the, the nitty-gritty, I guess, about what you can actually do about this now that we know so much about what it is. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with Valerie Davis Raskin, who's the co-author with Karen Kleiman of This Isn't What I Expected, Overcoming Postpartum Depression, and uh, kind of laid out the whole groundwork of, of what it is and what it isn't. So let's talk about what's what's causing it. I know that, that there are, you, you mentioned some hormones, and then, of course, you're going to have to add in there that there's there's no break from from the constant baby care. There's no sleep. There's probably not as much sex as one would like, or, or they're probably not even thinking about it at that point. You're not hanging out with your friends. There's the 24-hour baby channel. That's all you have to deal with. That has to contribute too, right? Absolutely. It's a dramatic life change, especially the first one. And we know that first babies are associated with more postpartum depression because by the second or third time, you tend to know this ideal picture isn't really reality, and you tend to know we'll get through it. Um, you're right. I mean, it, sex sex, and that connection with your partner, one out of ten couples have not had sex by the time their baby's a year old. So the ways in which couples, you know, have a kind of private relationship and a special relationship and connection are are disrupted at the same time that there's all this stress going on. Just literally, fatigue and sleep deprivation alone can bring about depression. We also know that people have a biologic predisposition to depression. So, I mean, that's been one of the pretty robust findings of the last 30, 40 years. And so, it may, it may be a warning sign that you have a mother or a sister, an aunt, a grandmother, um, a father, a brother with clinical depression, that may be a sign that you're at higher risk. And the other thing that we seem to be um, kind of zeroing around, haven't totally clarified in the in the research world, but is that there are women who kind of respond to hormonal changes, like some people respond to ragweed in the air. In other words, everybody's got the pollen in the air, but it makes some people sneeze. So all women are going through this stressful hormonal change, but some women are seem to have brains that are pretty sensitive to hormonal changes. So one risk factor for postpartum depression is having had premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual depression, maybe having had depression when you took birth control pills or having an emotional reaction. That also can be a warning sign. So there's kind of a cluster of women who seem preferentially sensitive to these big hormonal shifts. And even if you take the hormones out of it, you mentioned having uh, somebody who has a history of, of depression in the family. But if a woman was 
taking medication for depression. Most people are going to uh-huh. get off of that medication during the pregnancy. Yeah. Does that make it worse? Already being predisposed well, towards depression. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. I guess the ultimate yeah. <laughs> where I'm going with this is: yeah. is there a difference between regular depression and postpartum depression? Oh, that's a fantastic question, and I'm going to tell you um, yes and no. Uh, so yes, there's a difference, and one of the differences is this kind of reproductive clustering um, and the reproductive trigger. There's also a difference because the experience of, be- of being clinically depressed when your family is undergoing such a shift, you know, toddlers or other children you may have, stepchildren, but also when you have this total responsibility for an infant with high demand, you know, it's hard enough when you're depressed to take care of yourself, but you throw that in. And so in, in the context of it, it's really different. But women with depression are at greater, you know, a past history of depression. So that, that exact person, the woman who went off an antidepressant during pregnancy, yeah, she needs, to, she needs to either consider going back on once the baby's born or at least make sure she and her family and her, her caregivers are watching her closely and intervening quickly with any, uh, any warning mm-hmm. signs. All right. So, Valerie, let's start talking some nuts and bolts here. So what do you do about this? What, what is a woman well, to do? Because she's obviously at this point, she's aware of what's going on. So what what can she do to break the habit of the negative thinking and to do yeah. to take steps yeah. towards getting herself out of this pit? So a huge relief comes around when you say the equivalent of, you know what, we know what this condition is. We see this. This is postpartum depression. Because the alternative explanation is maybe I'm a bad mother, I'm a bad person, I'll never be happy again. So it's a huge, huge, huge change for many women and their and their partners to recognize this is a clinical condition, I have it. That alone brings a tremendous amount of relief. But then it's, it's not going to cure it just to label it. So that means that that should trigger some things you need to do. It tells you you need more support. So you may need emotional support. You may need someone to talk to. It may be a professional therapist. It may be a postpartum support group. It may be a um, your minister, someone to kind of share your troubles with because things look, things feel less heavy when they're shared. And so that's an important thing. It's important um, for, and, and the other thing that, that a woman is going to kind of need to do, and one of the things that that I think I, I particularly love about the community of women who blog about postpartum depression and write about it in books and, and are out there to give information, is this validating that this is something you can get through, it'll go away, you'll feel better, and tremendous relief you're not the only one. But it's also very important not to, um, to, to quite, as you said, the self-defeating thoughts of this is my fault. I am suffering, I'm struggling, I feel terrible, and it's my fault. And so to have, the, have a friend, a sister, a support group member, a husband, someone who says to you, eh, not so much. You know, lots of women are not the happiest they've ever been in the first year after a baby's born. We see this. It's common. And so however you get out there, that message, that information that says um, you've got to change those automatic thoughts that blame yourself or, or kind of automatically predict I'll never, ever, ever feel better. 
Now, professional treatment's got a role. I'm a psychiatrist. You know, this is a actually, I don't want to say fun condition to treat, but it's an easy condition to treat. Most women do really well if they decide to go on medication. It's not the only option, but things like Zoloft, Prozac, Lexapro, you know, medicines that people have heard of, Wellbutrin, are highly effective. But so is a very a couple of specific types of talk therapy, one being cognitive therapy to help you master mm-hmm. those self-defeating, that downward spiral um, that is part of the whole syndrome, and to help you recognize that you, you are having a normal experience, oftentimes normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Right. Well, Valerie, let's go back a little bit to the medication that you, you mentioned just in passing there, because I think there's a big concern. Obviously, you know, when people are pregnant, they're concerned about the blood crossing through the placenta, and then they're now they're obviously concerned after the baby about the right. blood getting into the milk supply and affecting the baby. What kinds of medications are safe and what kinds are not? Any individual safety, I can't say like just for any listener in your in your audience, this is sure. safe, this isn't safe. People should talk to, you know, it should be a decision about the partner, their doctor, you know, the pediatrician, whatever. But generally, pediatricians, OB-GYNs, and psychiatrists are pretty darn comfortable with using the, um, the group of medications that are called um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs. That would typically include the shorter-acting one. Prozac's a little more controversial because Prozac can build up in a baby's system. But Zoloft, um, Celexa, which is citalopram, some of these short-acting um, SSRIs have been widely used now for, for 25, 30 years in, in nursing babies. And it's so, a baby has so much stake in its, in its mother's, his or her mother's well-being that you have to take that into consideration because the worst case scenario is that mom says, I, I'm really severely depressed. I tried therapy. It didn't work. I tried exercise. It didn't work. I tried, um, you know, talking to my sister. It didn't work. But I'm going to stay this way so as not to take medicine while I'm nursing because that's really not necessary for her baby and it's probably not in her baby's best interest. So you don't want to do it, you know, you want to make sure the baby doesn't get a rash a couple days later. But the studies show tiny to no amounts detectable in infants, in breastfeeding moms. So I've I've been prescribing these medications to women for 25 years and really, really comfortable. Pregnancy is a much different situation because the dose the baby's exposed to is so much higher. But they're really small amounts, and we also know how fantastic breast milk is for babies. And so, again, that that kind of mm-hmm. helps you with that risk-benefit yeah. analysis. Valerie Davis-Raskin is the co-author with Karen Kleiman of This Isn't What I Expected, Overcoming Postpartum Depression. Uh, Valerie, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.